Man, listen, I gotta apologize again. What am I doing up here? We got a rock star like that. That voice, sorry, you know, having to listen to me. Edwin, the choir, thank you guys. Excellent job. Uh, we always appreciate uh, your hard work and, and your, your music. Um, welcome again. Um, thank you for joining us. We're, we're so glad that you're here um, with us as we, as we worship, as we, we celebrate uh, the, the God-given diversity um, of this church. I want to say a special welcome um, to our visitors. Um, we're so glad you guys are here. I would love to get to, to meet you and talk with you after the service. Um, come find me. Come find DJ or one of the trustees. Um, please introduce yourself. Please hang around. Come get some free food, um, fellowship, and, and hang out. Uh, it's it's, it's going to be a good time. Uh, this morning, we're going to look at Mark chapter 7. Verses 1 through 13, which we can finally say is, is found on page 842 of your few Bibles. 842 of your few Bibles, if you, if you don't have your own. But please follow along in, in whatever you brought uh, as well. Uh, I think this is a very appropriate text um, for our celebration here this morning. Um, we, we've talked a little bit about the, the blessing of diversity. Um, that's why we're celebrating it. But let's not forget some of the inherent risks um, that come with being part of a diverse church. And, and that is part of what our message this morning is about. Yes, there, there's great beauty, there is great value in this unity, kind of in the midst of diversity. Um, that, that's, that's God's doing. Christ is what unites us. But listen, we're all still sinners. I, I'm still a sinner. We all still kind of have these, these tendencies within us to, to kind of slide back into to tribalism, to, to slide back into our own personal preferences of our own traditions. All right? And that's kind of what Mark 7, 1 through 13 is all about. It is about tradition. All right? so, so look there in Mark 7, page 842. I'm just going to read it, follow along. Uh, this is God's word. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you, you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from, from me is korban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for this for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. Let's pray real quick before we begin. Father, we thank you for your word. Um, we thank you for today, the opportunity to come together and to celebrate. But right now, I pray that you would focus our minds on, on this text, um, on, on, on what you want us to get out of this. Uh, I pray that you would work and speak and apply these truths to our hearts, Father. I pray that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's be honest. We, we all have guilty pleasures, all right? I, I have a lot of them. We all have the, these things, right, that we really enjoy that we don't want other people to, to know that we enjoy. You know what I'm talking about? I am unashamed to stand up here in front of you and tell you that, that my guilty pleasure is Broadway musicals. All right, listen, I love Broadway musicals. I'm secure enough in my masculinity to tell you that, that I very much enjoy these things. If they weren't a million dollars each, Melissa and I would go every week and, and see all of them, but, but they're really expensive. But they're great. 
A few years ago, though, we had the opportunity to go and see one of the great Broadway shows of all time, right? The, the Fiddler on the Roof. Has anyone seen The Fiddler on the Roof? Anybody? All right, listen, guys, we, we've got to see The Fiddler on the Roof. It's a movie. Go rent it. You need to, you need to go and watch it. It is, it is simply, a, it's a classic, right? It won, it won nine Tony Awards. The movie won three Academy Awards. It was just this wildly successful and, and popular show. Uh, maybe one Sunday night we'll watch The Fiddler on the Roof. How, how's that, DJ? Is that, I'm just kidding. We won't do that. Um, but the story is about a Jewish father. His name is Tedya, and he is trying to stay true to his roots. He's trying to kind of hold his family together, kind of in the midst of this wildly changing world in about early 20th century Russia. Right At the beginning, the very beginning of the play or the movie, he explains what the title, The Fiddler on the Roof, means. He says this. He says, every one of us is a fiddler on the roof trying to scratch out a pleasant, simple tune without breaking his neck. Right. What, he, what does he mean? What he means is that life is kind of like, a, it's a balancing act. Right. So we're all kind of like violin players. We're all like fiddlers standing kind of precariously on a roof trying to just keep from falling off. Right. Life, life is, is uneasy like that. There's this great beauty and meaning to the music. But there's also this great uncertainty and challenges that we all face. Right? We're all just trying to not fall off the roof. Right? But Tevye goes on. He says this. How do we keep our balance? How do we stay up on the roof? That I can tell you in a word. Tradition. He says it is their tradition that, that, that it helps them survive. It gives them the structure and the balance that they need to not fall off the roof. Without tradition, they would all be lost. He, he goes on. He says, we have traditions for everything. How to eat, how to sleep, how to work, how to wear clothes. You may ask, how did this tradition get started? I'll tell you. I don't know. But it's tradition. And because of our traditions, every one of us knows who he is and what God expects him to do. Without tradition, our lives would be as shaky as a fiddler on the roof. Right? And then it just burst into this, this, this classic song, like, tradition. Have you ever heard? Like, it's just... It's really good. I was really tempted to do a kind of a Russian accent as I went through some of that, but it was really bad, so I spared you. Um, but listen, it is just a brilliant play, and I bet you didn't know that you could get all this kind of theology from Broadway. But this demonstrates something that I've been trying to kind of argue a couple of times, that we are all theologians. Right? Every single Christian is a theologian. I don't care if you've never read a single book of theology. Everyone who has ever thought something about God is a theologian. Right? That's all thought theology really is. It, is. it is thinking thoughts about God. And if that's the case, then, then the circle expands a little bit. Right? Not only is every Christian a theologian, but every single person who has ever lived is a theologian. Right? Including the most non-religious, agnostic, or atheistic people in the world. We all think things about reality, right? We all have kind of a system. We all think about the big questions of life, like why are we here? What's the meaning of life? What, if anything, happens after death, right? Every single person alive has some sort of framework that they build um, to, to answer these basic fundamental questions. So we're all theologians, whether you know it or not, right? We all construct what is often called a, a worldview, like a structure or a system of beliefs that we use to make sense out of life, right? A code that we live by. We all have something that we rely upon to keep us balanced on the roof, right? To keep us from falling off. For Tevya, he says that something is his tradition, right? And notice what he says about it. He says, 
Um, he doesn't know where they come from, but he says that it is the tradition um, that, that makes everyone able to know who they are, right? The tradition defines them. Their, their tradition is their identity, right? One of the most, this is one of the most fundamental things that a worldview or a, a religion does. It gives us our identity. So I want you to be thinking as we work through this text, what is that thing, all right? What is that tradition for you that, that most defines you and that you most cling to to keep you balanced on the roof, right? Fiddler on the roof, is just, it's a perfect illustration for what Jesus is dealing with in our passage this morning. Tradition, right? We, we tend to turn to a story like this and think, how could Jesus, talking to some guys about cleaning hands and, and pots and cups 2,000 years ago, how could that have anything to do with us? Oh, but, but I promise you, it, it really does. Because as we're going to see, every single one of us has the tendency to do the things here that the Pharisees do. Right, so let's, let's make sure first we know what tradition is and what this whole kind of dispute or fight is over. What are these guys coming and accusing Jesus of? Remember, I want you to, as you're kind of reading and studying the Bible, always take note of repetition in the Bible. Right, in, in anything you're reading. By the way, all right, repetition is a literary device, right? It is something that alerts us um, that, that this thing that is being repeated is important, right? If you see repetition in the Bible, you know that you're supposed to take note of that. Well, listen, we have tons of repetition here in our passage. Look at verse 3, right? We have the tradition of the elders. Verse 4, we have traditions. Verse 5, we have the tradition of the elders. Verse 8, the tradition of man. Verse 9, tradition. Verse 13, tradition. Six times in just these 13 verses, Mark uses the word tradition. Right? In, in the Greek, the word is paradosis. Right? And that, that, that comes from the word which just means to, to deliver or to, to hand over or to hand down. Right? So tradition is literally that which has been handed down or passed over to you. Look at verse 13. You can see both um, you can see both words used together in verse 13. It says, your tradition that you have handed down. That's the, actually the same word. It's paradosis parodidome. It's, it's the same word. It is basically that which has been handed down, which has been handed down to you. All right, so that's what tradition is. Something that has been passed on or handed down to us. But make sure and notice how Jesus qualifies tradition here in this passage. Listen, he is not saying that all tradition is bad. Right? We have the tradition of once a year this weekend of celebrating International Sunday. Listen, that is a good thing. Right? Don't, don't hear me saying tradition equals bad. Right? That's, that's not exactly what we're talking about here. Right? We're, we're kind of talking about so emphasizing something and so elevating something that we elevate it to the level as if it was coming from God. Right? So tradition, good when used properly. Bad when elevated and treated as if it was a command from God. All right, so that's kind of what we're talking about here. Not just all tradition. Tradition elevated and deified and treated as if it was a command from God. So look down at verse number one there. This is kind of a chapter seven, right? We just finished chapter six. Chapter seven is now kind of a turning point in Jesus's ministry. Right? We finished Chapter 6, there are 16 chapters total, so we're just over a third of the way through this book. But those first six chapters that we just covered, cover two whole years of Jesus' three-year ministry, right? So we know that this exchange happens around Passover. 
So we're almost exactly one year away from Jesus' betrayal, arrest, and crucifixion. So chapters 11 through 16, right, the last six chapters, which is over a third of the book, all cover the last one week of Jesus' life. Right? And then chapters 11, uh, chapters 7 through 10, these, these four chapters, they cover up the year leading to that. Right? So six chapters for two years, four chapters for the last year, and then we get six whole chapters for the last week. And that should be kind of telling you something. Listen, six chapters for one week, all right? because we're getting to the point. Right? The point is the cross. And that's why Mark devotes so much time here to the cross. So starting here in chapter 7... Right? We're going to see this kind of intensification of the hostility towards Jesus. And then as the hostility increases, we're going to start to see his popularity decrease. So as a result of this increasing conflict with the authorities, Jesus from this point is going to start to leave Jewish Galilee. Right? Jesus from now on is going to spend more and more time in Gentile Areas. He's about to start spending more and more time primarily kind of with teaching his disciples and not kind of with these big, massive crowds. So again, Mark is just moving the story very quickly to the cross. Right? And this is an important part here, getting there. This is the authorities, this is Jerusalem coming to him and rejecting him, which kind of sets the stage for what is to come. So in verse 1, we see the Pharisees and the scribes, they show up. They're, they're sent specifically by Jerusalem to come and check out this whole Jesus thing. Right? They, they did this back in chapter 2. We've already looked at this once, but he's getting more popular. He's doing these big public miracles. So Jerusalem has got to figure out um, what's going on here. So they come. They're, they're watching Jesus. They're just trying to find something. They're looking for something that they can use and accuse him with. They're just waiting for him to slip up. And in there in verse 2, they find that chance. They see that the disciples are eating with defiled, unwashed hands. Right, so down and then in, in verse 5, they challenge Jesus. They say, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? So let's explain what's going on here. Uh, again, we've we got to know something about the Old Testament and about Jewish culture at this time to, to appreciate what is happening here. First of all, listen, this is, just not a, this is not a hygiene thing. Right? This isn't like a, they're just trying to be clean and kill the germs. They weren't quite as sophisticated as we are in our understanding of, of germs and cleanliness and those kind of things. This is a ritual thing. Right? This is a ceremonial thing. It was about purity, and it was kind of a purely symbolic washing. They're not using like antibacterial soap and washing for 30 seconds. And then, no, this is, this is ceremonial. This is about purity. It's, it's symbolic. And remember... The distinction between clean and unclean was a very important one to the Jews at this time. Clean, you're, you're good to go. Unclean is trouble. And so they went to great lengths to avoid becoming unclean. Because if you are unclean, you are cut off from everybody else. If you are unclean, you are cut off from the worship of God. And this uncleanness was something that could be passed along or that could be transferred. So if someone touched a corpse... They were unclean. But then if you went and came and touched that unclean person, their uncleanness passed to you and on and on, kind of down the line. It was kind of like a, a virus that could be spread. So they go to great lengths to, to try and contain this uncleanness. The problem is, when it comes to clean and unclean and what to do about it, God's law is it's actually pretty simple. In fact, God's law says nothing about ritually washing hands before eating, right? It's not in there at all. In Leviticus 22, we're told that the priests 
were required to wash their hands before they entered the temple. But there's nothing else, right? That's really it. They're never told anywhere in the Old Testament, you can't find it, are we told to wash our hands before we eat. But, listen, it's a good idea, but we're talking hygiene. We're not talking about tradition. So it was over the course of time that the Jews kind of started to add to this law. Thousands and thousands of their own regulations and rules. And as Tevye said about their tradition, he says, they, they, these guys basically had a law for everything. They're, they're thinking, and this kind of makes sense. They're thinking, if, if ritual purity was important for the priests, well, shouldn't ritual purity be really important for all of us? And if God gives us a few laws about purity, then shouldn't we then add a bunch of other laws to it to make sure that we don't get close to those laws and break those laws? So they, can try to, they tried to basically construct and build these fences around the law. So you couldn't even get close to breaking it. So they just made all these different rules and regulations. And we see examples of that in verses 3 and 4. They had all these laws about washing cups and pots and, and couches and all these things. And they were especially concerned um, to, to wash when they came back from the marketplace. Now listen, I understand this one. When, when I get off the train, right... The, the first thing that I want to do when I get home is to, is to wash my hands, right? Everybody's, you know, they're all pressed together. People are coughing and sneezing all over you. They'll wipe their nose and then they'll just hold the bar, right? It's needed, right? So I get home and I wash my hands, right? Maybe I'm weird. Once, a, few, uh, a couple months ago, Emma was a little bit younger. We're on the train. Melissa and I just aren't paying attention. Uh, we're bad parents. We aren't paying attention. And we both turned to Emma and she's just there. She's got her mouth on the bar. She's just gnawing on <laughs> No. This is my nightmare. But... She miraculously somehow survived. Um, but, but again, listen, that's not exactly what we're talking about here. This is not talking hygiene. These guys were so concerned with washing after coming back from the marketplace because there were Gentiles in the marketplace. There were unclean people in the marketplace. And there was no way to know for sure who was unclean and who wasn't. And so they get back from these and they just went to town and made sure and washed everything just to be safe. So make sure and notice again, here's the key, Jesus has not actually violated one of God's commandments. Right? He hasn't done anything wrong according to God's law. Right? What they are coming to and complaining about here is that he has violated their tradition, right? the tradition of the elders. He has violated the rules that they themselves have created and added on top of God's law. He's broken tradition. And here's, here's how not to read this story by the way, right? don't, don't do this. Man, those, those crazy Pharisees, they were such legalists. I can't believe those guys would multiply and add their own traditions to God's law like they did. No, all right? Do not do that. If that's what you're thinking, you're missing the point. Right? We talked about this this morning a little bit in Sunday school. We want to, to tend to put ourselves in the shoes of the heroes in the Bible stories. Right? You've probably already been doing this in this sermon right now. I, listen, I guarantee most of you have already thought of someone who you think is like the Pharisees. Man, so-and-so over here, he really struggles with this, right? Listen, don't do that, right? The, the, the point is not to hear me thinking of someone else who is like the Pharisees, someone who, who struggles with this. And so you're like, you're in the Jesus shoes, so kind of pointing it out and be like, oh, you're struggling with this, you, you Pharisee, all right? Don't do that, right? Listen, you are the Pharisees in this story, right? I am the Pharisee in this story, right? Every single one of us has this tendency. Let me give you a few examples of, of how we do this. Let me start with some of the more obvious ones, and then we'll kind of work our way down. All right, Protestants. 
Listen, we're Protestants, right? You know that. This is, that's, that's who we are. We are. We're in a Baptist church. We're Protestants. When we think of um, elevating man-made traditions to the level of God's commandments, our thoughts immediately jump to Rome and the Catholic Church. And that's honestly, you know, it's a pretty good illustration. Right, today, actually, around the country, around the world, churches everywhere are celebrating Reformation Sunday. Right, that's, that's what today is. It is also Reformation Sunday. Right, this is kind of our remembrance or the celebration of the split starting in about 1517 when us, the, the Protestant churches, split off from the Roman Catholic churches. Right, so this is a time when many churches are coming together to, to remember and thank God and celebrate such men as, as like Martin Luther and, and John Calvin and Ulrich Zwingli. These guys that God used to kind of lead us away from the Catholic Church. These men that God used greatly um, to get us where we are today. Listen, we would not be sitting here in a Baptist church without the Reformation. Right? So that's kind of what is being remembered and celebrated um, around the world. But as Protestants, one of the key doctrines of the Reformation that we hold to is called the doctrine of sola scriptura. Right? That's just Latin. It just means scripture alone. It's one of the key tenets of the Reformation. We believe that the Bible, as God's word, is our only authority and is our only source of revelation from God. Right? We are attempting, that we fail sometimes, we're trying to hold solely to the commandments of God and not the traditions of men. But the, the Roman Catholic Church disagrees with this. Um, they have, in the Catholic Church, if you go read some of their theology, they have two sources of authority in Revelation. They have what they call sacred scripture. Right? We're good with that. And then alongside that, they have what they call sacred tradition. Right? And it's interesting, in light of our passage this morning, that that's how they choose to refer to it as. Sacred tradition and sacred scripture. And listen, most of the disagreements between Protestants and between Catholics really can boil down to this question. Is God's word enough, or do we need something else? Right? The Catholic Church says we need something else, and that something else is sacred tradition. And it is from this tradition that they get such doctrines like purgatory and the, the perpetual virginity of Mary. The idea that, that praying to saints is a good thing. The, the whole idea of the Pope right, comes from the sacred tradition. None of these things find their justification in God's word. So what the Reformation was were these men rising up and pointing this out to the Catholic Church. Hey guys, listen, none of this stuff is in Scripture. And how did Rome respond? They basically said... Yeah, you're right. It's, it's not. So what? Because these things are a part of sacred tradition. Tradition and scripture elevated to the same level as sources of authority. Right? That seems to be problematic according to our passage this morning. But let's just let's, let's be honest. right? Let's not just kind of vilify everyone else. We struggle with this just as much as the Catholics do. Right? Protestants, especially Baptists really struggle with this as well. In fact, and listen, I'm speaking here from personal experience. I grew up on this. Sometimes fundamentalists uh, are, have mastered the art of teaching doctrine uh, as, as the commandment of God, the man-made doctrine as the law of God. Right? Did, you, did you grow up like this? Like When I was growing up as a Christian, the things that you had to do to be a Christian, right? you, you could not go to movies, you could not listen to secular music. Cards was a really big one when I was growing up. Listen, Cards are used for gambling sometimes, so cards are from the devil. Do not use cards, right? You had to not use cards to be a Christian. One of my favorite ones, I, 
Have you ever heard the, heard the term mixed bathing? I, it's straight out of the 50s, right? It was like a sin to, to go to the beach or to swim in a pool with boys and girls kind of at the same time, right? Because there was, there was the potential for lust, right? So notice what we do here when, when fundamentalists sometimes do this. And listen, I'm not talking about everyone. I'm just talking about a tendency here sometimes in, in this tradition, right? When they, they treat these man-made requirements um, the same as, as requirements for Christians, Listen, all we're doing when we do that is we're doing the same thing that the Pharisees are doing. God's law is being added to. Right? God's law says nothing about movies and listening to music and, and dancing and playing cards. Right? What, what sometimes has happened is they've taught these personal preferences, these traditions as God's law. Oh, you can't do any of those things and be a Christian. Show it to me in the scriptures. Just show it to me in the text. And man, I really wish I could get into this, but, but, but we don't have time. It's, it's going to come up in our passage next week, so teaser, come back next week and I'll, I'll explain this. Mark 7, 14 through 23 is all about this, right? To teach as Christians sometimes do, to teach as, as fundamentalists do sometimes, to give all of these rules and regulations that we must follow to be Christians, it demonstrates a complete failure to understand our own sinfulness, Right? And how it is that God saves and changes people. Because next week we're going to see Jesus explain very clearly that none of these external things can make us unclean. Right? Playing cards, dancing, going to movies, swimming, none of these things by themselves can make you unclean. None of these things are the problem. You are the problem. That's what Jesus is going to tell us next week. I am the problem. My sinful, twisted heart is the problem. Right, trust me, take it from someone who was a teenage boy. Right? You don't need to be at the beach to struggle with lust. Right? I could, I could construct that at any point in time in my teenage years. Right? None of these things, these rules and regulations that we try to construct and force can change our hearts and our behaviors. So what fundamentalism sometimes seems to imply is that we can regulate morality. And that we can change hearts by all of these rules. And Jesus is going to say next week that it will not work. Because the problem is our own sinful hearts. Rules cannot change our hearts. Rules will never change us. Only a work of God's grace on your heart will change you. He has to do it. You cannot do it. Your rules and your traditions cannot save you. And in fact, sometimes they just make the problems worse. You, you may not be a Catholic or a fundamentalist here, which we've been talking about so far. But listen, every one of you still struggles with this. I struggle with this mightily. I want to do things my way. Right? I want to elevate my personal traditions and make everyone else sub to submit to what I think. Right? Here I am coming into this new situation. Right? I went to seminary for five years. I was in a really big church home. I read lots of leather-bound books. You know, I'm, I'm kind of a big deal, right? No, right? I'm not a big deal. That is my own sinful pride and arrogance that, that slips into this pattern of thinking that I am important, that I know how things should be done. But I don't, right? When I do that, I am just like the Pharisees. I see all of these things that we do and think, hey, we should, we should do it my way, right? This is obviously how Christians should do church, and I need people, it often falls to VJ or to Edwin or to the trustees to remind me that many of the things that I think are simply my personal traditions, my personal preferences, my own sinful attempts to make what I think into God's law. 
And you all struggle with this too. I was reading some minds during the worship. And I know there's someone sitting out there thinking, where's the piano? <laughs> we, we always have piano. I'm going to have to say something to, this, some, to someone about this. Like, listen, we need the piano. Right? Listen, don't elevate a tradition to a commandment. Right? I love the piano. We have two brilliant piano players. And we're almost always going three brilliant piano players. And we're almost always going to use the piano. But don't let it become a non-negotiable, right? Don't let a good thing become an ultimate thing. I'm sure some of you are still sitting here fuming over that there's a black ESV Bible just like staring you in the face, just kind of just right there at you. Like, what is this thing doing here, right? We've always used the King James Version here. It's, it's tradition. Exactly, right? It is man-made tradition. Tradition is good, but don't elevate tradition higher than it should be. There is nothing in God's word that tells us that we have to use a 400-year-old translation in King James English. But what the Bible does say in Romans 10 is that faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word. And the biblical concept of hearing includes understanding. Right, so we want God's word in a language that people understand. I want people walking off the streets who have never once read the Bible to be able to pick it up and understand exactly what it is saying. That is written in a language that they themselves speak. Right, we made the switch to more effectively reach people with the gospel. And that is biblical. But the point to, to take away from all of this is that we all struggle with this. You struggle with it. I struggle with it. We all have this natural, sinful tendency to want to do things our own way. To elevate our traditions to the level of God's law. And this then, if you're thinking about it, is the inherent risk that comes along um, with all of the good things about diversity. Right? We as a diverse international church are more susceptible to this problem than a church where everyone is exactly the same and wants to do the same things and, and speaks the same language, right? We're coming together from all of these different places with all of our own personal traditions and preferences and beliefs about how church and music and all of these things should be done. And we have this tendency to want to try to force those things onto everyone else. Well, this is how we did this back home. This is what I'm used to. This is what I like. This is how we should do it here. Right? But that will lead to disaster. If you do it, it will lead to disaster if I do it. And that's why we say over and over again that our goal is to have everything that we do be rooted in and motivated by God's word. Listen, we all have personal preferences. There is nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with tradition. The problem arises when we cling to those preferences and we demand those preferences. There's always going to be something here that we do that you do not prefer. There's always going to be something that we do here that I do not prefer. But we need to be okay with that because it's not about us. It is about Him. It is about how we best honor and worship Him together and about how we best reach others. Those factors must determine the decisions that we make in this place. First, the question is what most glorifies God. Second, the question is what best builds up the body. And third, the question is what best reaches non-Christians with the gospel. Right? What can never motivate us is, is what our own personal preferences are. So listen, I just talked a lot about how Christians struggle with this problem. Right? But as I mentioned in the beginning, this is not a Christian thing. Right? This is an everyone thing. 
Like Muslims and Buddhists and, and Hindus and Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses and atheists and people who aren't anything. Everyone does this. Right? It is a part of our nature as sinful people. We all have some sort of religion, some sort of worldview, some sort of system of belief that gives our lives structure. We're all striving, all working, all trying to make sense out of life and to, to infuse some sort of value into our lives, to, to prove that our lives have meaning and that we matter, and to, to give ourselves an identity. Remember, Tevye said it was the tradition that gave his people identity. And it's the same thing for all of us. We all do this. So those traditions may be very different. Right? Some people's traditions may have nothing to do with God or religion as we usually think, but we all do the same thing. Your tradition is whatever it is that defines you. Right? Whatever it is that you most cling to. That thing that you stay awake at night thinking about and worrying about. That thing that you work the hardest for. That thing that brings you the most joy and satisfaction. You may be trying to give your life stability and meaning in any number of ways. It may be your job. It may be financial success. It may be your family. It may be pleasure or ease or comfort or your education. Any of these things you can take and try to make the thing that identifies you. Right? All of these things we make into just as much of a religion as Christianity. We all take some good thing and elevate it to be a God thing. And that is what Jesus is talking about here, right? We all have this desire. We're all working or striving to keep from falling off the roof. And what Jesus is saying is that God has told us exactly how to do that. But we all try to come up with our own ways. We all elevate our own personal traditions above God. Look back real quick at the text at verses 6 through 8. Look at how Jesus responds to the Pharisees here. And to us. Remember, we're the Pharisees. He says, it says, And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Man, listen, Jesus did not mess around, right? Jesus did not mince words. He basically says to these guys, to their face, you're hypocrites. He says, you're, you're, you're fake. You have rejected me and my commandments for yourself and your traditions, all right? You, you say all the right things, but your heart demonstrates otherwise. It is separated far from me. You worship me in vain. In other words, your attempts at worship are empty and useless. This is the result of elevating our traditions to the level of God's law. Of clinging to our own way of doing things at the expense of His way of doing things. It leads to distance and separation from Him. And that is problematic. And then in verse 9, he explains that when we try and establish our own personal traditions, um, we do it by rejecting God's clear and simple commandments. And then he gives a specific example there in verses 10 through 12 of, of how the Pharisees did that. Let me explain it real quick. The fifth commandment says quite simply, honor your father and mother, right? Clear enough. In a society without big government, in a society without things like social security, it was the child's responsibility to provide for and to take care of their parents when they were older. But the Pharisees had come up with a loophole that they called korban. Now, they would piously, they, they, they'd come to the temple and they'd go to one of the, the priests, the Pharisees, like, I'm, I'm, I'm committing all that I have, all of my money and all of my resources. I am giving it to God, right? Seems honorable enough. But in this loophole, what it meant is you were, you were giving it to God upon your death, 
So as long as you were alive, it was still yours. You could still benefit from it and still make more money and still enjoy it. But it was now protected. If your parents needed help, you could say, man, sorry, mom. I really wish I could give you some money. But Kurban, you know, I've already committed all that money to God. Sorry, you know, it's his. And then, you know, they'd go off to their mansion and eat a really big, fancy meal. Right? All they're doing is coming up with a loophole to, to hold on to their own money and not have to give it to their parents. They're elevating a tradition above God's clear law. And then in verse 13, Jesus says that by doing this, they have made void God's word by their traditions. They follow their own man-made traditions and ignore God's law. And as a result, they show that they are separated from God. So let me, a few quick things as we close. Again, what you've got to remember is that, listen, this is not a Pharisee thing. This is what we all do. One of the most beautiful truths about Christianity is that God is a God who speaks. Right? He is a God who has revealed himself to us. He has come to us and told us exactly what to do. Right? Sin and what the Pharisees are doing here, what we all do with our various traditions is to attempt to kind of set up our own way of doing things in place of God's way of doing things. Right? And the whole issue of this story basically boils down to that. Are you going to do things your way or are you going to do things God's way? Right? Those are the two choices left on the table here. And this is the question that applies to all of us, Christian and non because deep down, you know that you are doing this, right? You are striving, you are working to make sense out of things, to, to give your life meaning and value and purpose. You're trying to fill some sort of hole. But Jesus says here in our passage that it will not work. Your traditions cannot fill those holes. Your traditions cannot do what you want them to do. Your traditions cannot save you. One of my favorite quotes of all times comes from the great theologian Augustine. He says, 1600 years ago, he says, You have made us for yourself, God, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Right? It's 1200 years later, another great kind of theologian and philosopher, a man named Blaise Pascal, he says this. He says, There is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every person and that it can never be filled by any created thing. It can only be filled by God, made known through Jesus Christ. And then about 300 years later, C.S. Lewis said a very similar thing in Mere Christianity. He says, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, right? If you just keep trying all these different things and you still wake up the next morning unsatisfied. If I find this desire that none of these things can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Right? Tevius says he doesn't know why he has the tradition does, that he does. But the Bible does. It tells us. It says we have these traditions because we're all sinners. Right? Because we have all rejected God and all tried to go our own way with disastrous results. That's why we live in the most affluent, comfortable society in history. Yet at the same time, we are the most guilt-ridden, dissatisfied, lonely, and depressed society in history. Right? Your traditions, those things that you are using and trying to fill that hole with, those desires that you try to satisfy, but nothing seems to do it, should alert you to the fact that there must be something else. And that is why we talk so much over and over and over again about this guy, Jesus. Right? Utterly unique in all of history. No one has come close to having the impact on the world that he has. Why? Think about it. Why did this obscure man living 2,000 years ago in backwoods Nazareth, in, in tiny, no big deal 
Israel. Why? How did this man change the world forever? Right? You've got to be able to explain that, no matter what you believe. The Bible does explain it. Right? It says that he had such an impact because he was God in the flesh. He had such an impact because he was God come down to us. And in no other religion do you get this. God come to us for the purpose of dying for us. Why? Because of the wall. Because of the, the separation that we have constructed between ourselves and God. This separation that is a result of our rejection of him. We sin, we reject his way of doing things, we go after our own way, and it goes terribly every time. God has set the world up to work in a certain way. And when we don't follow that, we get the guilt and the frustration and the dissatisfaction that we all have. That, that nagging feeling that there just must be something more. And Jesus says that he is that something more. He says that you are designed to be in perfect relationship with God. But since you messed it up, He came to fix it. And that's what the gospel is. It is the good news that God has come after us in the person of Jesus Christ to, to save us and to bring us back to Him, to fulfill us and to give us an identity and to give our lives meaning and fulfillment and love. So Jesus comes and He stands in your place and He dies. He, he pays the penalty that your sin justly deserves. Right, listen, sin, which is like crime, crime demands a payment. We expect a good judge to punish a murderer. Well, in the same way, God, the good judge, must punish our crimes as well. But he, he offers up his son, Jesus Christ, in our place. He, he punishes him instead of us so that we can go free. It is the greatest act of love in history. Christ dies so that you can live. And all he calls us to do is to give up our doomed attempts to go our own way. To stop clinging to our own man-made traditions, our own attempts to save ourselves. And the Bible calls this repentance. Right? Listen, and there is no salvation without repentance. Jesus says, repent and believe. If your gospel presentation, if your gospel message does not include repentance, then you haven't shared it. Because Jesus Christ says, repent and believe. We, we turn from our way of doing things and then we believe. We, we trust in Him that He is mighty to save and that His way is the only way that works. Your traditions do not work. You know that. Deep down, you do. Every other way, every other religion and worldview is basically the same. They tell you something to do to save yourself and to give your life meaning. But the gospel is different. It doesn't tell us something to do, but it tells us something that has been done for us. All right, the gospel is not instruction. The gospel is announcement. It is the eternally freeing good news that God has done all the work for you in Jesus Christ. You don't do it. He does it. He works. You rest in that work. He will fulfill you. He will give your life meaning. He will love you and never forsake you. All right, so in our story, he tells us, listen... It's your way of doing things, or it's my way of doing things. All right? Those are our two choices. All right? Let's turn to him in prayer as we close. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for sending us a, the perfect substitute that we need to stand in our place. We confess our sin. Father, we confess, I confess my tendency to want to do things my way. I confess my tendency to strive and to work and to try to prove myself and to, to kind of establish my identity based on how well I do here or kind of these various other things. Father, forgive us 
for that. Father, grant us faith and repentance. Father, show us how your way is the only way that works. Father, we ask that you would work in our hearts this morning. Father, I can convince no one of the truths um, of this text. I can apply none of these things to people's hearts. I cannot save a single sinner, Father, but you can. And so we ask that your spirit would work in this place. Kind of convict us of our sin, Father. Show us our need of a Savior. And just kind of uh, illuminate uh, the great love and mercy and glory of Jesus Christ. And just, just draw us to him, Father. We thank you for this time in this church. And the blessing that it is to be here and to celebrate together. Father, to you be the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.